The reading today is by Reinhardt <coughs> Niebar from The Irony of American History. There are no simple congruities of life in life or in history. The cult of happiness erroneously assumes them. It is possible to soften the incongruities of life endlessly by the scientific conquest of nature's caprices and the social and political triumph over historic injustice. But all such strategies cannot fully overcome the fragmentary character of human existence. The final wisdom of life requires not an annulment of incongruity, but the achievement of serenity within and above it. Nothing that is worth doing can be achieved in our lifetime. Therefore, we must be saved by hope. Nothing which is true or beautiful or good makes complete sense in any immediate context of history. Therefore, we must be saved by faith. Nothing we do, however virtuous, can be accomplished alone. Therefore, we are saved by love. No virtuous act is quite virtuous from the standpoint of our friend or foe as it is from our standpoint. Therefore, we must be saved by the final form of love, which is forgiveness. The irony of America's quest for happiness lies in the fact that she succeeded more obviously than any other nation in making life comfortable, only to run <clears throat> into larger incongruities of human destiny by the same achievements by which it escaped the smaller ones. Thus, we try too simply to make sense out of life, striving for harmonies between man and nature, man and society, and man and his ultimate destiny, which have provisional but, all, but no ultimate validity. Our very success in this enterprise has hastened the exposure of its final limits. There are about 150 Unitarian Universalist congregations around the country and the world that participate in the Soul Matters monthly themes along with this church. That is kind of an esoteric way to begin a sermon, but here's what that means in practice. Each month, our worship services share a single theme. Last month was integrity. This month is resilience. Our open circles follow that same theme, and the theme is shared by 150 other Unitarian Universalist congregations, including all of the congregations in both Nebraska and Kansas. The themes are set at the beginning of the church year, and so it was in about May of 2019 that the schedule was set that we would preach on resilience for the first time on February 2nd, 2020. And so imagine, if you will, <clears throat> dozens, hundreds of UU clergy turning the page on our worship planning this week. This week. We're human. We watch the impeachment hearings and we feel sick at heart. Because it's flu season, many of us are literally sick at heart. Or our children are. Because it's our job to track these things, we know that Monday was Holocaust Remembrance Day. It was the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. 
And so this thing started happening about Wednesday. We all started messaging each other. What words can we possibly say about resilience in this moment? When what we need to hear is how to be resilient. And what else could we possibly talk about in this moment? Many of us, I suspect, sat down to write on Thursday, Friday, <coughs> maybe Sunday, Saturday night. We sat down to write a sermon that we needed to hear ourselves. That is certainly the case for me. Unitarian Universalist ministers are to serve the cause of liberal tradition. That's how our ordination ceremony puts it. Liberal is used in a very particular way here, not as a statement of political ideology, but as a distinct school of theology. Liberal theology is a hallmark of 19th century Protestantism, and particularly both Unitarianism and Universalism. The story is a little bit more complicated, but one of the hallmarks of liberal theology is its fundamental optimism about both human nature and progress. James Freeman Clark's five points of the new theology, which is a founding document of liberal theology, ends the progress of mankind onward and upward forever. Theodore Parker, a mid-19th century Unitarian preacher, preached that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And indeed, in the late 19th century, there was much progress to celebrate, especially if, like Parker and Clark, you were a bourgeois American man. But there was a breaking point for liberal theology. The early 20th century saw the theological movement that was liberalism crash like a wave on a rocky shore. How do you talk about the progress of mankind onward and upward forever after trench warfare and the First World War? Does the arc of the moral universe really bend towards justice after the Depression, after the Holocaust? Liberal theology in many places did not survive 1945. And it survives in our tradition but in somewhat changed form. Reinhold Niebuhr, who Mary Kay quoted at length, began his career as a liberal theologian. In the early days of his career, he was a pacifist minister in Detroit. He was concerned with the, the plight of the working class in Detroit, in the car factories. And over the course of 30 years, his theology evolved, never quite fully losing the optimism of his early years, but tempering it. In 1932, he wrote a book called Moral Man and Immoral Society, developing this idea that you can have a group of people, all of whom have good intentions, and the result can be pure evil. A group of well-meaning individuals can create an immoral result. In 1932, that was an extraordinary statement for a liberal theologian to make. And he went on to say, collective diffusion of responsibility means that nobody feels accountable to stop the wrong. After all, they were just going along with what society said was right. 
1952, Niebuhr published The Irony of American History. And in it, he takes this critique of liberal theology to a reading of history. The irony in the title is that in a country with tremendous natural resources, oceans, between it and both the history and aggression of its rivals, and a founding story that invokes fleeing from religious persecution, of course Americans embraced the idea of progress as an inevitability. Of course that became part of the hallmark of American theology. But, he says, the irony is that that progress is based as much on the accidents of history and geography as it is any innate moral superiority or arc of the universe. Instead, he argues we should be realistic in looking at the world as it is while still engaging with it. In 2007, then-candidate Barack Obama was asked who his favorite philosopher was, and he said, Reinhold Niebuhr, because Reinhold Niebuhr had the compelling idea that there's serious evil in the world and hardship and pain, and we should be humble and modest in our belief that we can eliminate those things. But we shouldn't use that as an excuse for cynicism or inaction. I take away, Senator Obama said, the sense we have to make these efforts knowing that they are hard and not swinging from naive idealism to bitter realism. And so in this week, remembering the Holocaust, watching impeachment hearings, seeing a vote on witnesses fail, worrying about the state of the world, plenty of you, you ministers, are thinking about what gives us resilience. What is the theological comfort food that we grab off the bookshelf to fortify ourselves in these moments? The reading this morning from the irony of American history was excerpted in the program for my ordination. So, guess what I've picked off the shelf? Nothing that is worth doing can be achieved in our lifetime. Therefore, we must be saved by hope. Nothing which is true or beautiful or good makes complete sense in any immediate context of history. Therefore, we must be saved by faith. Nothing we do, however virtuous, can be accomplished alone. Therefore, we are saved by love. No virtuous act is ever quite as virtuous from the standpoint of our friend or foe as it is from our standpoint. Therefore, we must be saved by the final form of love, which is forgiveness. This is a prescription for resilience over the long haul for taking care of ourselves and staying engaged even in times of hardship, uncertainty, and pain. Hope, faith, love, forgiveness. These are things that transcend the moment. And in developing them, we develop our capacity for resilience. Nothing that is worth doing can be achieved in our lifetime. Therefore, we must be saved by hope. We start with hope, always. Unitarian Universalism starts and ends with hope. We are hope people. This is the legacy of liberal theology. Theodore Parker did not simply say that the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. The full quote is, I do not pretend to understand the moral universe, 
The arc is a long one. My eye reaches but a little ways. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by the experience of sight. I can divine it by conscience. And from what I see, I am sure that it bends towards justice. To hope is to believe that a better world is possible, even if that is beyond our lifetime. Parker was an abolitionist writing two years after the Fugitive Slave Law was passed. Things refused to be mismanaged long, he continued. Jefferson trembled when he thought of slavery and remembered that God is just. To have hope is to know, even three years after the Fugitive Slave Act was passed by Congress, that justice will come. To hope is to cast our vision beyond our own generation to push the world towards justice just a little bit at a time. Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief, Rabbi Shapiro writes. Do justly now, love mercy now, walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. Nothing which is true or beautiful or good makes complete sense in any immediate context of history. Therefore, we must be saved by faith. There's a difference between the faithful and the practical. Martin Luther King talked about being creatively maladjusted to the injustices of the world, responding not with resignation or accommodation, but with creative, faithful action. We don't need everything to make sense. It is not a requirement for us to be engaged with the world. I wish everything made sense. I wish I could get up behind a pulpit every Sunday morning and say, this is the way things are. This is how we need to act. And if we do this, this will be the result. And know that to be true. That would be a nice world to live in. <laughs> make my job easier. But... In that world where there is so much certainty, well, nobody would come to churches to listen. That is not the world or the pulpit or the tradition that we're in. So we say things that we cannot prove with logic but are compelled by. To say in 2020, to say any time in history that individual humans have inherent worth and dignity is to make a statement of faith, a statement that cannot make any complete sense in any immediate context of history, but that is nonetheless true. Faith is truth outside of history. Nothing we do, however virtuous, can be accomplished alone. Therefore, we are saved by love. This is no time to go it alone. This is one of two messages Reverend Susan Frederick Gray, the president of the UUA, uses over and over again. Pretty much any time she addresses Unitarian Universalists, she says, this is no time for a casual faith, and this is no time to go it alone. And we know that because there is resilience in community, in being together. We practice this every Sunday 
when we share joys and sorrows together, speaking into shared silence or building a cairn of stone. And when we act in the world, we know that the only way that we're ever really truly effective is when we act together as a community. And when we celebrate and when we grieve, we gather together. We are not our own, says the hymn that we sang at nine o'clock. We belong to each other. We belong to each other in love. For though I speak with tongues of men and angels, if I have not love, I am but sounding glass and banging gong. At a Unitarian Universalist service of installation and ordination, there are two charges. One charge to the new minister and one charge to the congregation. And so at the service that we did with this congregation three years ago, Reverend Catherine Clarenbach gave the charge to the minister. And she charged me to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And then she told me to look inside myself and see what was afflicted that needed to be comforted and look inside myself and see what is comfortable that I need to afflict. And then she finished with this. She said, I charge you with one last admonition. Remember that our shared work, all the varied work of ministry is far too important, too deep and wide, too intimate with the lives of hundreds of people, thousands of people that you will touch unknowingly. Reach out to your colleagues because this work is too much to do alone. Reach out to your friends and remember that we are with you. Just as all things are caught up in the interdependent web of existence, so now you are caught up. So now do you have the loving, wise, and imperfect embrace of those you serve and those who are now your colleagues. And so I charge you, remember that you are never alone in this work, never, not ever. Blessed be your ministry. That's a thing that a beloved friend told me at the start of this, but it's not just a charge to the minister, that's a charge to every person that hears it. Remember that you are never alone, not ever. No virtuous act, Niebuhr says, is quite as virtuous from the standpoint of our friend or foe as it is from our standpoint. Therefore, we must be saved by the final form of love, which is forgiveness. The second charge at a service of installation and ordination is delivered to the congregation, to all of you. Three years ago when this congregation gathered, it was delivered by Reverend Jean Pupke of the Unitarian Church of Richmond, who started out by congratulating you on calling this good minister of almost 20 minutes. <laughs> you get ordained first and then you get installed. That's the order of, of the thing. And then she charged the congregation with three words, to listen, to stretch, and to love. 
love, she said, because you'll get it wrong. Because you'll have to try again. Because you will misunderstand, but when you do, look to yourselves first, because our pilgrim tradition is about the act of conscience and reflection about what we are doing. In the order of service, she said, Oscar has placed this quote from Reinhold Niebuhr. Nothing we do, however virtuous, can be accomplished alone. Therefore, we must be saved by love. Allow yourself to be saved by love. For I wish to go back to Richmond and hear in just a few years of the wonders of the Church of Lincoln, sacramentally, interpersonally blessing this world, unafraid. Love because you'll get it wrong. Niebuhr spoke of forgiveness. Jean speaks of love. I usually talk about grace, but really it's all the same. To love is to stay in relationship, to be accountable to each other, to be committed to this shared work that we are about. Hope, faith, love, forgiveness, because we'll get it wrong. That is how we get through hard times. This is how we're resilient, in faith, in hope, and in community. The failure of liberal theology was not that it was too optimistic. We can look at the world, at the arc of history, and see progress there. We can see infant mortality drop over the last 200 years. That is not a morally neutral statistic. Despite the best efforts of several generations on multiple continents, there has not yet been a third world war. From Gideon versus Wainwright to marriage equality, liberty in this country has expanded more often than it has contracted. And we know we have more to do. There is more liberty to be had. The Third World War has not happened yet, but we are not out of the woods. And while infant mortality has dropped, we know We know the difference in life expectancy and infant and moral maternal mortality right here in this city. We also have that information, and so we know there's more work to do. But the failure of liberal theology was in conflating the statistical case, the moral arc bending over generations with the personal. So in my life, the Cold War has ended. The definition of marriage now better reflects the, the reality of love. And there is a chickenpox vaccine. And all of that is not quite the same thing as saying that I am sure that my daughter's life will be better, easier, more prosperous than my own. It mistakes the real progress that has been made through hard work negotiating the START Treaty, fighting for legal recognition, working on a lab on the 500th vaccine test. It mistakes all of that hard work for some inevitable destiny of progress. I don't know. I don't know that the world, inherit, that, the world that Eilish will inherit will be better than this one. I can't make that claim. 
logically and analytically? I hope so. I have faith that it will be. And I know that as communities, we are working hard to make it so and extending each other grace, forgiveness, love, whatever you want to call it, when we fall short. And in weeks when we could all use a little bit of resilience, that's what I keep going back to. Amen.